Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to this Sydney Ideas event. Um, before we begin, um, <clears throat> I'd just like to give an acknowledgement to country. I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that we, uh, and the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching and learning and research practices within this university, we may also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of the country. Um, thank you for coming. Um, I'd just like to uh, kind of let you know what the format tonight is. Uh, we have the lecture presented by Professor Kevin MacDonald, and the, uh, that goes to about seven, and there will half an hour for a uh, question and answer session. Uh, I'd like to let you know also that this session is being uh, filmed and also audio recorded. Um, so that uh, this is an event that will be on the ABC and I think it's Sky as well. Um, I'd like to introduce you to our distinguished guest tonight, an international kind of scholar on uh, political sociology of violence who's got an extensive CV on those issues. Um, uh, Professor MacDonald is uh, head of the Department of uh, Criminology and Sociology at Middlesex University. Um, he's held distinguished positions in the University of Melbourne and also at the École des Études en Sciences Sociales in Paris, where he also studied. Um, and I'm, he's going to talk tonight on a topic of radicalization, and it's a book that's uh, coming out shortly. So it's going to be a kind of a hot topic. Uh, which he's deeply engaged in, but also, uh, as the audience demonstrates, it's a topic which is of kind of great interest internationally in, in terms of our kind of contemporary society and what's happening in the kind of transformation of the modern world. So I'd like to uh, invite Professor MacDonald to speak. Thank, thank you very much for that introduction. And I, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners, the Gadjigal people, uh, can I just make one change in terms of what's being explained? Uh, I'm going to give a lecture, but uh, at the end we will have question and answer, but I'm here very much to explore questions with you. Uh, so I'll be opening out themes and particular using some of the work I've done as a way to do that, but uh, very much presenting it uh, as a kind of work in progress. What I'm going to do is go over, cover a bit of f field, uh, probably fairly quickly in a way, uh, and then we'll have time perhaps to deepen some aspects in the Q&A period at the end. Uh, and I'll be uh, speaking to the different slides because we're recording this as well for a, a radio production. I suppose the starting point is a kind of new sort of violence that's emerged in Western societies. I'm, from, I'm living in Britain at the moment. I'm originally from Australia. I worked many years at Melbourne University. Uh, and my field of work really is uh, the social world and experience of um, modern industrialized societies. Uh, and the 
focus really at the starting point is to try to understand uh, new types of violence that's evident in attacks that have taken place in different cities, uh, but also the movement of people to Syria, between five and 7,000 people traveled to Syria to take part in the war there from Europe, over 100 from Australia. Uh, and there are some quite distinctive changes in terms of previous periods, particularly in the age profile, people are much younger. Uh, the average age was 20 to 24, much younger than the people who went to Bosnia uh, or Afghanistan a generation earlier. And what's striking is changing forms of violence. Structured organizations are giving way to friendships, couples, families, individuals, a pattern that's evident in what we can loosely call, as you'll see, Islamist-inspired violence, uh, but also in contemporary extreme right-wing violence, uh, which is emerging in many countries at the moment. And we also see similar patterns in terms of stabbings, weaponizations of cars, and so on. Now, this context is one that's difficult to understand, and it's, I think, incumbent upon the social sciences to contribute not to offer the answers, but to contribute to social debate, trying to understand what this means. Currently, if you look at the United Kingdom, where I live at the moment, uh, there are live security investigations currently involving some 3,000 people. Uh, so while we really do face a challenge not to exaggerate the significance of this violence, we also need to recognize its reality. The people involved in that violence are a very diverse group. Very important to note, most do not have an activist background. That's quite different from the pathways into, let's say, terrorism in the 1970s uh, in Europe or North America, where frustrated activists got, to put it bluntly, beaten up by the police, and there was an escalation of violence, and they went into, if you like, organized uh, and sort of militarized violence. Today's violent actors in countries like Australia or in Europe are not activists who've hit a wall and become frustrated. A significant proportion have criminal backgrounds, but with also significant differences across countries, ranging from about 17% of the people who went to Syria from Britain to some 35% from Germany. If we look at Islamist-inspired actors, the majority have a born-again religiosity, a uh, religious type of experience that's largely self-constructed, uh, and a very high proportion of converts amongst those, ranging from about 40% of the people who went to Syria from the United States uh, to 12% of those from Britain. And there are differences in ethnic patterns and so on. One of the core shared characteristics is a, sh a type of DIY religion uh, constructed very, very often in relation to the internet, uh, and a disconnection from religious communities and traditions. Uh, and we also see significantly the changing role of women, moving from support roles in the, 19, uh, in the, in the Bosnia period in Afghanistan to becoming actors themselves. Now, the term radicalization, which I'm speaking to this evening, emerged more or less in the period around 2007, uh, linked to a quite well-known report by the United, uh, by New York Police Department, and it's, in a sense, developed from that, that period uh, as both a conceptual and policy practice tool. 
Uh, the little image I've put up there is from that New York, uh, New York Police Department report, a kind of linear conception of radicalization, going from pre-radicalization, identification, indoctrination, uh, a word that they invented at the time, jihadization, and then attack. Sort of linear pathway. Now there's some strengths in this. It does focus on processes and transformations, but some very significant weaknesses. Uh, it unifies, under this pathway, very different practices and groups, the school children, gang members, gamers, all sorts of people, including those concerned with suffering. Uh, and it separates this group, supposedly radicalized, from others who manifest similar types of violence. And the obvious one is school shooters, who I'll speak to briefly. Uh, and this paradigm has developed and more and more is associated with what you might call a vulnerability model, uh, which suggests that radicalization is best understood as vulnerable people who are in some ways recruited or groomed by uh, manipulating recruiters. Now, this conceives of radicalization as something done to a person, uh, and by implication, de-radicalization also has to be done to them. So there's no real account of the kind of agency or meaning involved, generated by the people themselves. It has some advantages in policy terms. It allows intervention uh, without criminalizing people, drawing on models of safeguarding from other areas. Uh, but in terms of the number or proportion of people who follow this pathway, uh, I think we're dealing with a minority of those who experience radicalization. Uh, one model of this is influential in the early periods of the PREVENT program in Britain. It's premised similar pathway, uh, unhappy people, uh, the pool from which radicalization, radicalized people come from. Well, that's a fairly large pool, unhappy people. Uh, then though they look for justice, become frustrated, seek like-minded people and become further radicalized. This uh, was a model of government policy uh, in the uh, latter part of the first decade of this century, uh, in the period around about 2010, 12, 13. Uh, it's a kind of linear approach, um, but there's no, I mean, first of all, there's a very large number of people of unhappy, unhappy people, and probably most of us at some time or other join that group. Uh, it's not obvious that that is going to become basis for radicalization. More modern expressions of this uh, try to understand radicalization in terms of factors. Uh, but once again, these are factors shared very widely across the population. This I've put up as a, as overhead here uh, from a recent example, uh, which suggests that um, radicalization is a problem, a product of, or a factor of radicalization is underachievement. Well, many of us are guilty of that. Uh, I must say myself, I fit into that category sometimes. Uh, we are confused about identity, uh, change in behavior or appearance as a result of new influences. That occurs to many of us when we go to university, change friendships, groups, and so on. These are all parts of normal human experience. The problem is, however, these become a marker if somebody's 
part of a suspect or let's say vulnerable community. So some person can change themselves quite radically and it's regarded as a quite normal experience. Someone else, for example, begins to wear a headscarf and it's fitted into potentially some sort of narrative. So there are very real problems with the very general models that still shape policy and practice uh, in terms of radicalization and this model of vulnerability and factors. Now, what I'm suggesting really is that this is a challenge to the social sciences. We need to move beyond that very broad model of what's causing or what's generating radicalization. Uh, amongst the social sciences, terrorism studies certainly has engaged with this kind of violence, but that is in, largely embedded in international relations and war studies, uh, focusing on organisations, one-way communication systems of propaganda. These disciplines, if you like, of international relations are very helpful to try and understand the evolution of the Syrian civil war, for example, or the role of Hezbollah. They're much less equipped to deal with the experiences, let's say, of teenage girls who decide to travel to Syria. And that really is the challenge for disciplines like mine, sociology, which overall has not been engaged with trying to understand what these types of practices mean. So what I'm thinking about, and I'd like to think with you about this evening, is what disciplines like sociology should be offering. It seems to me very important that it offers frameworks to understand rationalization as a social experience, not as an isolated person being manipulated by a computer, but some sort of sociality. And that's what I'm going to explore with you this evening. What I'm going to be trying to open out is tools and theories that can capture and explore what I'm calling the everyday sociality of radicalization. And I would like to propose that that's fundamental to co contributing to prevention work and de-radicalization. And if you like, what I'm proposing is that the social sciences need to move, move like a shift from factors to experiences. And what I'm going to try and explore this, morning, this evening is some experiences with you, uh, recognizing that what I'm going to do is necessarily superficial, we have one hour, uh, and incomplete. But also that's the whole point of a verbal communication. You're not referees scrutinizing a journal article. You have a group of people here I'm engaged in a dialogue with. So in that sense, I can present things that are work in progress. But fundamentally, what I'd like to begin with is the critical importance of social media in this space. If you like, what you might call mediated relationships. Now, when we look at how social media works, in particular in terms of radicalization experiences, it works more at the level of sharing and constituting feelings more than ideas. And I'm going to speak about the word social scientists use to think about that, social experience of affect. We're talking about types of intimate co-presence and practices of being with others. And all of these are fundamental to understanding radicalization.
I put up an image there of a, taken by a young man uh, from Denmark who is in Syria from uh, 2014, I think, in January. Uh, and it's an image, he calls it Sunset in Sham, seen through my Glock. And then he's got a uh, hashtag Glock, no filter, no makeup, natural beauty. When I downloaded that image, it had been favorited 73 times and recirculated 61. Uh, it captures something that words don't. It evokes something that words don't. Clearly, he uses the term beauty. I think there's an experience of decompression there. Uh, there's some sort of openness to something happening there. That's the way visual communications work, and they are fundamental if we want to understand uh, experiences of radicalization. So what I'm going to do this evening is largely look at a number of experiences, probably three. Uh, I'm not going to show any horrific images uh, or images of horrific violence, but some of the images I'm going to speak to and the responses of people are, I'm afraid, um, offensive. Now, I'm not doing that to shock or uh, offend gratuitously anybody, but it is important to understand the power of experiences at stake. And I'm just going to try and look at some of those with you. Now, uh, I'm going to just break up a couple of words at the start. I'm talking about affect. So this is jargon buster number one. Affect involves mind and body. And it's fundamental to understand radicalization that we understand both those dimensions. We're not simply talking about ideas, but types of feelings. And affect involves our power to affect the world around us, but also to be affected by it. Uh, if you like, it captures everyday life experiences, and I'm quoting an author here, continual motion of scenes, relations, contingencies, the world, if you like, is made up of intensities and feelings. And that's fundamental to understand social media, and it's fundamental to understand radicalization. The second jargon buster, and it's the last one, is I'm going to be using the word digital cultures. Digital cultures are, if you like, continuous flows of affect. More and more they involve networked intimacy, and that's why the bedroom is a significant location for radicalization. Uh, they involve experiences that expand but also limit what we can sense. Uh, they involve experiences of acceleration, pleasure, urgency, and they capture a social world which we can describe in terms of affective fabrics. And if you like, we live, not so much in organizations anymore, more and more we live in what you might call affective fabrics. Everyday sociality of connections, ruptures, emotions, words, politics, sensory energies, some linked to structures, others intense yet ephemeral, like that sunset in Sham, which is just there for a minute and then it's gone. They are uh, the framework, if you like, of radicalization. Radicalization takes place and is a affective fabric. When we look at experiences of radicalization, we are struck by that digital culture. 
and what you might call the experiential world of the jihad. Uh, there's an image there of Abdelhamid Aboud, uh, the leader of the attack on Paris in November 2015. And during, his, during his time in Syria, he wore a GoPro HD video camera all the time and filled his whole life as a mini celebrity. He packaged that up and tweeted it back and videoed himself on his Facebook page constantly. For him, the search for visibility and to be somebody was fundamental to what he was doing. Uh, and that visual material that he produces and many others like him reveal, if you like, pathways and experiences. I'm going to speak about three to try and ground what I'm talking about. And the first one is a young woman called Aksa Mahmud. She is an 18-year-old student in 2012. She's integrated into her community. She describes herself as a true Scot. She tweets 30 times a day. She lives her life through social media. Her life is a continuous stream, if you like, of updates. Uh, it is affective experience. And her world consists of six people, essentially, a group that she calls her fam. In November 2012, she's sharing texts that her mother sends her. The texts are AXA. Pick up the phone, pick up the phone, pick up the phone, pick up the phone, AXA. She's an 18-year-old girl who's got better things to do than answer her mother's calls. Uh, she then tweets that. She takes a screenshot and tweets it to all her friends. This is all my mum texts me. One year later, she left for Syria in November 2013. So in the space of 12 months, she goes from texting, picture, uh, tweeting pictures of her mother's texts to heading off to join the Islamic State or its precursor uh, in Aleppo. Less than two years after that, she was listed for sanctions by the United Nations Security Council for her role in supporting Al-Qaeda-linked terrorism. So you've got a 12-month period between cute texts about her mum to departing for Syria. Now, for, as for a social scientist, we've also got a lot of data to work on. Someone who tweets 30 times a day lives their life in public, and our ability as social scientists to engage with that uh, is really a, it's an ethical imperative to do so, but an intellectual challenge. How do you do it? She lives in a world of friends, and that world's structured, if you like. There's a center, there are people on the edges, there's constant jostling for where they are. It's a world, if you like, of inclusion and exclusion. Fun is fundamental to it, uh, and it's structured by social media. For this young girl, this young woman, she's 18, social media is not a communication tool, it's a habitat. It's the world she lives in. One tweet there on the left, uh, she's, um, it's, a, it's a, little, a little app that you can put someone's face and make them into a monkey and she's putting her friend's face in there. Uh, another uh, is going on about a competition between the two of them, uh, her and her friends. Uh, she explores desire, uh, and so you see lots of images, her, her tweets are peppered with images of uh, particularly Middle Eastern uh, hot film stars, 
the one on the left, she says, this kind of thing by GM, you get me? And the other image uh, is a film star texting, and she's got uh, in her, her quote under her image is, he's texting me, TBH, to be honest. She's playing uh, a game that, con this is the structure, if you like, of communication, world of games. Uh, she and all her friends are very fascinated by the model of masculinity associated with fighters. Uh, the boys in her world, to use her expression, are a little flaky. Uh, the fighters, they are real men in that they have courage, but those we'll see later on are also tender. Uh, and so she, she sends a text to her friend Smaladin, who also went to Syria. This, 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 mashallah, uh, God willing, with a smiley face, with heart eyes. Uh, she texts about her re reactions to her upcoming exam. Her, she tweets about an exam coming up. I can't be asked with this exam. This is how I feel, ATM. Her social communications, if you like, are that. This is how I feel, ATM, at the moment. And it's very important that her friends respond and they construct together how they feel together. Her response to uh, her texting or her tweeting to her friends that she can't be asked with her exam produces instant response within half an hour. Different friends are saying, study, otherwise you'll end up marrying my uncle in Africa. Uh, Mahmoud Aksa Mahmoud is of Pakistani origin. Study is very important for her in terms of establishing personal autonomy and also for all her girlfriends. And the way they don't sit down and have a focus group about that, they play with it, they joke about it. And in this case, various friends say, go study, you'll marry a freshie. A freshie is somebody who's just arrived in the country, a marriage organized by her parents. Uh, this is um, fundamental to understand the way people communicate uh, through humour. And humour is fundamental to understand radicalisation. She encounters distant suffering uh, in late uh, 2012 with the Israeli incursion into Gaza. And for the first time, her timeline, her tweets start to change. Uh, and she starts to tweet about people's experience of suffering and breaking family bonds and images of anger and pain. Very important, this is a fundamental rupture in her timeline, this event that's come into the, her intimate space and the world that she's constructed with her fam, her friends. Her first response to this is a kind of eclectic mix of social critique largely constructed in terms of good versus evil. She discovers herself as part of a movement. She starts uh, using Photoshop to construct images and then she sends them off tweeting. She has several thousand, or at this point, uh, about 1,500 followers on Twitter. Uh, print this off and hand it out as, to as many people as you can. Stop feeling helpless, react. This is November 2012 an image of a Palestinian face with figures of uh, indicating the injuries during the incursion. She's finding herself part of something bigger. And then, for the first time, another image enters her timeline that she retweets from somebody else. 
It's an image of people praying. It's sent by somebody else who says, These are, if they're still praying with bombs going off, then what excuse do we have for missing our prayers? Hashtag Gaza. She retweets that within 15 minutes of receiving it. And she doesn't say anything, which is very unusual for her. She's clearly not got words, but she responds immediately. This image captures, if you like, courage against the cowardice of bombers. Stillness versus chaos. Something clearly beyond the day-to-day. -day. There's a new type of significance here that's entered her timeline. What Mahmoud doesn't know is that that's actually an image from Tahrir Square uh, earlier on in 2011, taken by a photographer of the New York Times. That's not Israeli bombs in the background, that's uh, lights and fires burning in Tahrir Square, and that's a row of people praying there. But she doesn't know, and in a way for her it doesn't matter. There's no evidence that she knows anything about the events that took place in Tahrir Square at all in her timeline. Then we see a transformation starting to occur. Confronted with suffering, life becomes contingent. And her hopes, in particular constructed around study, start to become illegitimate. And what's more, they hide another meaning. So she quotes from Abdullah Azam, the founder of the Welcome Center in Afghanistan that emerged, that became ultimately Al-Qaeda. And she says, you don't know, uh, Azam says, you don't know when you're going to graduate, you don't know when you'll die, beware of having these incessant hopes. Now possibly in Afghanistan, you shouldn't think about your future. But she is living uh, in middle class Glasgow. But something's happened to her at a very affective level and her future is now confronted with suffering and becomes contingent in a way that it wasn't before. She then starts to tweet around other themes, retweeting a text, a tweet sent by another girlfriend, who says, we should, think all, we should all think ourselves as hypocrites. It's when you're safe, you should feel worried. Shaitan, I mean Satan, uses arrogance for corruption. It's a very short tweet, but full of very important words for her. Above all, the theme of corruption, hypocrites, and safety. There's some sort of affective experience going on. Her world is no longer safe, but also she is in danger of hypocrisy and corruption. The world centered around study that we saw before, the pathway to autonomy and adulthood has become less legitimate. And through the various tweets, and you can track through uh, and see this transformation relatively clearly, uh, we start to see new sorts of themes emerge. The world is organized in terms of an opposition between innocent and guilty. And the innocent and guilty then starts to change into corrupt versus the integral. False Muslims versus true Muslims. False ones being the supporters of Bashir al-Assad. True ones being the, those fighting against him at this period, the Free Syrian Army. There's a new, so there's a transformation occurring here that's fundamental for us to understand where innocence and guilt 
start to be experienced by her in a new way of purity and impurity. And a sector of the population start to be apprehended, felt as impure. Now the opposition between purity and impurity is a fundamental structure of racism uh, and hate crime. Fear of contamination. All, I'm a sociologist, all sociologists hate to say the word always. And most never will. It's one of those words that they'll never say. However, racism always refers to the language of filth. Racist abuse will always, at some point, use the word dirty. It's a fundamental structuring principle of racism. And it's not surprising that here, uh, in January 2013, she's retweeting, uh, in this, uh, she's posting to Tumblr, a political uh, group in Pakistan, who says it's our religious duty to kill all Shias and cleanse Pakistan of this impure nation. Now she is a first year university student, posting to Tumblr calls for genocide in 2013 in Glasgow. At that time, this is quite possible. Now I believe this would not be possible uh, and we'll perhaps discuss uh, what the role of uh, prevent policies is in relation to this kind of action. But here she is calling for genocide because that's what this is. Uh, as a university student. And how is she doing this? She's constructing a world that becomes structured in terms of disgust. Because to call for genocide is not an easy thing. To call for killing people and killing whole groups of people is not an easy thing. Radicalization is not something you just slip into. But that's what this is. She constructs disgust, and she does it through a series of tweets over two or three months where she claims that Shia Muslims have sex with animals. Uh, and she posts an image of Shia religious leaders uh, sitting down to the table to eat, and she asks, are they eating an animal that they've previously had sex with? Uh, and she starts tweeting that Ayatollah Khomeini the historical leader of uh, the Shia revolution, uh, says that it's permissible to have sex with children. Now, constant theme emerges, and I'm not going to go through all of it here, is sickness and contamination. And this isn't at the level of... We're not talking about political ideologies here. We're talking about a much more effective response to an experience. And she constructs the theme of disgust in terms of the collapse of borders, uh, borders in particular of sexual, sexuality. Uh, and this becomes, during about a three-month period, the main thing she is tweeting about as a university student. Now, social science underlines that the affect of disgust, I am disgusted, is fundamentally a social construction. It's about fear of penetration, rupture of borders that ensure the integrity of the subject. Uh, but sub-disgust, if you like, generates a community of people bound together through, if you like, the shared condemnation of the disgusting. And it's very important to note because she keeps coming back to it. 
Disgust is associated with an experience of fascination, which for people who uh, read Freud would recognize that that's the tension between attraction and repulsion. A very powerful experience and a way of feeling connected to the world. It's fundamentally a communicative affect. And for her, disgust establishes a truth. The fact that I feel sick means that you have sickened me, my body tells me something that I'm experiencing as an irrefutable truth. You are sickening. In that sense, her reaction to the kind of experiences she's constructing over a period of months is what you would call visceral. It's something she feels. It's response to things, experiences out of place, surfaces difficult to control, and with a significant degree of anxiety associated with it. Now, uh, what she is doing here, she is in fact transforming a kind of fear of hypocrisy through a kind of aesthetic of the grotesque. And the guilty, for her, are transformed into the abominable and the impure. And she transforms suffering, if you like. The horror she experiences at suffering is transformed into the horror of the grotesque. So at the start of that period, there are lots and lots of images of suffering. By the time she's going to Syria, there's almost no images of suffering. They've been replaced by a completely different set of questions. The suffering have disappeared, replaced by other themes. This is an illustration I'm putting up here of a, uh, the social process involved here. She says that uh, Shia Muslims drink blood and eat feces. Uh, a friend underneath writes, disgusting. They go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. These are the themes for her. They're the center of a kind of radicalization experience. And they're integrated into a language of humor which makes it possible to say something that is unsayable. Here she's joking with her friend Smell Ladine, and uh, who say, and you can read the text, uh, it's a laugh out loud. It's very, very important to understand the way that humor makes it possible for her and her friends to say things that otherwise can't be said. It's central to this experience of radicalization. There's a significant debt to popular culture. She makes memes and circulates them. Uh, but fundamentally, it's structured in terms of basic categories of modern racism and hate crime. That is this type of radicalization. And this is the experience of a 19, 20-year-old girl. Now, it's important to know, within this, Mahmoud doesn't believe jihadists and radic uh, killing machines. She encounters distant suffering. That's what started all of this. And she feels the world, if you like, uh, through celebrities. That's, if you like, the sociology of distant suffering. It's too much for us as people to feel the way other people suffer. 
So, but we'll happily watch a celebrity go and we won't feel what the suffering feel, but we'll feel what the celebrity feels. It's quite common in visual structure and media and so on. Uh, and typically takes the form of a triangle where you have the victim, the celebrity who feels the pain and with whom we identify. And then the, normally there's an observer who's expressing gratitude. And here I've got three images, a quite famous one of Princess Diana, uh, and then two others of people from uh, the One Direction uh, visiting a hospital. At the center of this, what's at the center? It's what the celebrity feels. Because we can feel that. We can't feel the other things, it's, too, it's unimaginable. We can't feel it. We can feel what the celebrity is feeling. And this is very important for Mahmoud and the way she, her experience is not just this model of disgust, if you like. Uh, and we can see that she often will tweet about the tenderness of fighters. And in this image she posts to um, Twitter in March 2013, while she's still a university student. She feels the pain of the fighter. We identify with this image of a young boy looking at the fighter. Up in the top left-hand corner is there is a dead body. There's just been an, exp an explosion. This is Aleppo. But just as those other images in the hospital, that's just the background. What it's about is our connection to the fighter here. And she adds a text, don't be sad, Allah is with us. It's very important for the social sciences to develop capacity to understand what we experience when we look at something. And the extent to which social communication now involves production and circulation uh, of images and thus feelings. We also need to be very aware of the way these are manipulated. In this case, this image is photoshopped. It's produced by somebody uh, uh, who then just threw it out into uh, the internet. Uh, it's a well-known photographer, I think from the Global Post in Canada, uh, and then an artist uh, who works out of Cyprus. Someone has put those two together, put them out there. Mahmoud, and not only her, lots of young people have seen that, reacted to the tenderness of that young person looking at the fighter, uh, and responded in the same way. She constructs, if you like, and inhabits what you might call a sensory field. And I won't go on to too much about it, but uh, one structured in terms of the grotesque and the beautiful. Her trajectory is not that of a vulnerable person. She's not alone. She's at the center of quite a big social network. But her trajectory captures a type of communitarian radicalization where violence is cleansing. It's structured in terms of pure and impure. It's not the purification of the self, which some forms of radicalization are. It's the creation of the grotesque other. Uh, and social media is a field where this takes place. And we really do need to understand this is the experiential structure of racism. And in that sense, work, if you like, counter-radicalization work addressing this type of phenomenon, this type of experience, really has a lot to learn from anti-racism action. Because fundamentally, the experiential structures are uh, the same. I'm going to speak, and I'll have to speak briefly, I think, of a couple of other experiences just to highlight 
the diversity, if you like, the difference of radicalization pathways. Here I'm going to speak about a young man from Britain, Junaid Hussein, who went to Syria in 2013. There's an image of him four months before he left at the bottom of this, this uh, presentation. He's wearing an anonymous mask. He's close to that world. He lives in a world structured by hidden meanings and conspiracy. He was interviewed while he was a hacker and he describes it when he became political at the age of 15. He started again, he encountered different, distant suffering. He wanted to know what was happening, but he didn't go the same way that Mahmoud did. He says, and I quote, I browsed the net, read books, watched documentaries. I was getting more and more into politics. I started researching the deeper stuff, like the Freemasons, Illuminati, the Committee of Art 300, etc. Hussein lives in a modern world of conspiracy theory. It's a very important source of experiences of radicalization, hidden meanings, and very much associated with uh, digital culture and very important for anybody who wants to understand and respond to contemporary radicalization. He was a hacker and remained, he remained a hacker right up to when he left uh, to go to Syria and then he started the uh, cyber caliphate for the Islamic State. Now he, for many years before uh, encountering uh, Ubi's trip to, to Syria, would be tweeting, and, and in this case he's put a, this is a cached image of a website he's taken over, messages. And in this one he says, the United States government crashed a plane into the Twin Towers and blamed it on Muslims. Now he asserts that probably over a period of two years, roughly 2,000 times. So he hacks into low-level secured sites. Does he believe it? We don't really know. And I'm not sure we'll have time to explore it, but there's a type of experience here uh, that uh, he doesn't actually have to believe it, but it could be possible. Uh, he creates a group called, his name is uh, Trick, that's his handle. He creates a hacking crew called Team Poison. Uh, uh, and uh, they originally were in a relationship of competition with a group called the Indian Cyber Army. Uh, and they would spend their time trashing their sites. Uh, and he writes when he trashes them, we hacked your sites and you didn't uh, do anything back to us as you couldn't. Stop going around saying you're big, you're small. There's a structure here that's quite different to Mahmoud but very important to recognize. It's one of competition. He's fundamentally trying to establish relationships of superiority and inferiority. Uh, it's a world of respect and disrespect. It's the culture, if you like, of uh, hackers. And he says, um, keep, we will keep doing this, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sites uh, that he has hacked. Um, uh, and uh, as you can see, he's against... India is against Hindus uh, and uh, this group, the Indian Cyber Army. This is the pathway, this is where he comes and this is how he radicalizes. He's 
again, doesn't fit the model of uh, a vulnerable person. He's in a relationship of competition. And it's very important to notice that at the bottom, he messages a big F off to the Indian Cyber Army, and then he uses the screen names of the other people that he's opposed to. Mahmud never names any of the people she's calling to be liquidated, killed. Hussein does. He's in a relationship of competition. He wants to establish his superiority. The others are script kiddies. That is, uh, they're not real hackers. They use purchased uh, material to hack sites. And he refers to them by name. Who they are matters to him. And there are thousands of hacks like this. Uh, and we get the themes that emerge that um, at the end of this one, destiny is not a matter of chance, it's a matter of choice. It uh, sounds like something you read on the back of a cereal packet, but it's very important to him uh, and the culture that he's part of, this theme of destiny. Now, he lives in a practice of gamification. He lives in a world where knowledge is power, and that's his constant message in the hacks that he undertakes. He lives in a world that's separated out into winners and losers, uh, where the game, if you like, is a kind of metaphysical sorting. And in this world, you progress through levels. You uncover hidden tools to help you advance. You don't need to believe it, but you need to act as though it could be true. There's a quite different experience here, but a very important one to understand, a kind of stylization of the world as myth. In that world, in this world, if you like, of conspiracy, the powerful are always hidden. And to contest power, what do you do? You make them visible. So, he's involved in a campaign of action this is about uh, 18 months before he goes to Syria. He's created a hashtag, Kill Illuminati. He's tracking, he and other trackers are trying to stamp out the role of the Illuminati in the music industry. Uh, he believes P. Diddy has his success because not of his music, but because he's a member of the Illuminati. So he hacks into Trump Hotel where uh, P. Diddy's staying, gets his credit card and his passport and puts it online. Now, why does he do that? Because making something visible exposes the truth. Truth is achieved through making something visible. Uh, and this is a hack he's put up to demonstrate, to explain to everybody what this means. Now, his uh, first conviction was for hacking into the website of uh, the the Gmail account rather of Tony Blair's uh, personal assistant or former personal assistant. For him, he lives in a world of practice where to make something visible is performative. It establishes a truth. In this case, guilt. Uh, he hacks into uh, anti-terrorist hotlines. Throughout all of this. The powerful are hidden. That's why Hussein and the people who come from this type of pathway want to be visible, but they want to remain hidden at the same time.
That's why every time he puts an image of himself on the web and tweets an image of himself, he'll always be wearing a mask. He wants to be visible, but he knows, he feels, that the powerful never show themselves. They always are hidden. That's, for him, the fundamental affective experience of power. Now, this is um, an important experience to understand, and obviously we don't have the time to do it fully here, but it's one of masking as a kind of social practice, where masking is associated with a transformation of one state to another. When you wear a mask, it's not to hide your identity, it's to take on a type of power. Now, I can see by my watch in front of me, I've got five minutes to go, so I'm going to scroll through, but Hussein created the cyber caliphate and used the same principles of action he developed while he was in uh, Britain to, the, to extend to Syria. Now, I'm just, uh, I, I'm afraid I don't know how to do this without putting you through it, so I'll have to just scroll through a few things. But uh, um, I was going to speak about a third type of experience and person um, who we interviewed with and worked with, who was involved in a group called Muslims Against Crusades, uh, who comes out of a kind of criminal pathway. Here again, there's the emphasis on visibility, in this case, power is we become visible, we discover who we are. We, this is an image of a person looking in the distance, very important in jihadist culture, circulated thousands of times. We become someone and our violence reveals it. That paradigm is very close to the violence of the school shooter who feels that they are no one and wants to establish themselves as someone through their acts of violence. Violence, if you like, reveals the truth. This paradigm we can see amongst school shooters uh, is also very important amongst uh, radicalized jihadists for whom violence uh, reveals the truth and it recurs constantly in the types of visual self-representations of fighters on the one hand uh, and school shooters on the other, all of whom take photographs of themselves, posting them to social media. I just wanted to finish by one or two points, and it'll be just a couple of minutes on both, we might explore them. One is the importance of what I'm calling here the uncanny and the sublime in this. That is a sense of discovering something enormous that you didn't expect that was there. In one case, uh, the reality that you have dreamt about seems to come true. In others, uh, particularly influential amongst French fighters from criminal backgrounds who went to Syria, a sense of immense power, hidden realities that are there that you can, they're going to touch you. There's something huge happening, often constructed from images drawn from Hollywood B movies and popular culture. But uh, there's a very important sense here of the sublime, the sense of something vast, something threatening, that in some ways will engulf me or swallow me up. And here's a tweet from uh, Iftikhar Jaman, who went to Syria in 2013. He puts up an image 
not of a political tract. He puts up an image of the universe that takes my breath away. I really want this so bad. Uh, the sense of size and simple immensity is very important at a sensory level to uh, understand uh, in terms of radicalization. And the last group I'm going to talk about, and then we'll open for questions, I think, and discussion, is a pathway that's important to recognize because they don't fit this model, or these, this is certainly affective, and that's the case of schoolgirls. So I've taken here some tweets from one of the three young girls who were 15-year-olds who went from Bethnal Green to um, uh, Syria in 2015. Uh, and they're not about the grotesque, as we see with Mahmoud. They're about beauty. But beauty constituted through vulnerability. The very, very strong theme of the vulnerable and the beautiful and the pure, not constructed in terms of the impure, but in terms of their need for protection. Uh, and within this, you get a type of experience of sisters uh, and a type of uh, what you might call um, adolescent fusion, where uh, there's, it's possible to share the love of one other and not be in a relationship of competition as a result. And that's the love of Allah or God or also the Khalifa, the powerful. Uh, that's why their, uh, their constant theme here is the fighter is not so much an individual but an idea that we can all love the same person and it's not going to throw into question our love of each other. And so most of the tweets that they put up before they left are similar to here. And it's captured, if you like, by the metaphor of three girls travelling together. And they all share love of the one. A kind of adolescent fusion experience associated with a type of religiosity. Uh, and in this case, you'll find it amongst girls who share the love, but you won't find it amongst boys who won't share love in this same way. So you won't have this type of fusion experience uh, amongst boys go of this age going to Syria. Typically, they'll be going uh, around being supported by an older person, not somebody in this relationship here. Now, here, uh, this is an image of one of the young girls who went. She's making this social, this anticipation of pleasure, a living desire, and she photographs her feet uh, and she, with the word waiting. This is uh, three weeks before she left for Syria and she's waiting to go. Now, all of this um, finishing says that radicalization is not a state, it's kind of social practice. Uh, and it's fundamental, if we want to be able to respond to these practices, that we capture the sociality at stake. Uh, they're shaped by, these experiences are shaped by affect and intensities, and they mutate, if you like, into different imaginaries and quite different practices of violence. And I'll just leave you, if you like, with a kind of conclusion here, is that we can say there are analytically distinguishable pathways associated with different kinds of affect, different kinds of feeling, and also different understandings of violence. And it seems to me we can see three types of pathways. One centered on us, 
and there's different models of that, the unclean other, our love of each other, if you like a communitarian experience, pathways that are centered on you, and they are more about us demonstrating power, where violence takes the form of not only killing, but dehumanizing. And hence, the fundamental importance that I haven't spoken about here of cruelty in violence, which is not instrumental. Cruelty is to take away the humanity of the victim. And this is models associated with knowledge is power and so on. And then a type of radicalization more centered on the I, which is about purifying the self, obliterating the past, or in some cases, obliterating oneself now. There we can see the imaginary of the martyr uh, and the sense of scale is very important here uh, with violence that fractures reality, if you like, similar to the quest of the school, t school shooter to become someone through violence. So he, oh, sorry, there we go. Uh, I'm sorry about that, I thought it was up there. Um, so these are three pathways. Now, I'm finishing here, but what I'd like to say is it's very important that we move from very general things about some change in what I'm wearing, being a marker of radicalization or vulnerability, to actually move from engaging with factors to engaging with experiences. And that's where social sciences play a fundamental role to build up our capability to understand those experiences, to discuss those experiences, uh, and in a sense to recognize them. Uh, where, it, uh, where, if you like to go to the fourth point I'm making in, in my little conclusion here, uh, prevention work needs to move from factors shared by whole populations and engage with much more clearly understood transformation pathways that, we're, that are constructed around identifiable events. Now this is very important intellectually for the social sciences because these are, if you like, radicalization is not constructed with other things, it's constructed with the raw material through which we make our social world. Humor, culture of exploits, masking, celebrity, pleasure, fear, all of these things are what, with the things that we construct our sense of living together, these are the raw material uh, that's used to ex produce experiences of radicalization. It's very important uh, that we, if you like, develop our capacity to understand those. Uh, and these start to become more and more important in policy and practice. It matters to families and friends but also, and if you like, communities affected by radicalization, but it also may be of relevance as well to the very, very small number of people who find themselves attracted by, or if you like, fascinated by, the allure of jihad. And perhaps the social sciences can help them as well discover different futures for themselves and ultimately for us all. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor MacDonald. A very stimulating talk, uh, 
reflecting the kinds of problems that we confront in coming to understand the nature of the contemporary world we're living in. It's very interesting, the focus on uh, affective uh, kind of relationships as well as visual. And uh, the internet and social media is obviously a space where that kind of social reality can be created, invented even. Um, I suppose, it, for me, it throws up a lot of questions. Um, in particular, I'm very interested in the relationship between a methodology that kind of seems to be focused strongly on the forms of social media and communication, the data, the enormous data that's produced, and the social worlds which that has come out of. And one of the, one of the things I was thinking when you were speaking, uh, particularly in relation to Pakistan and the, the notion of uh, kind of, you know, the genocide against Shia, this is a context which is really quite a kind of complex transformation of Pakistani politics. And how divorced can a discourse about anti-Shia really be anchored in a contemporary geopolitics, which is kind of structured around, uh, you know, as you know, the, the kind of confrontations between the Iranians and the Saudis and, and how that's been energized by different radical and jihadist and Salafist groups. Um, in other words, I mean, I remember in Pakistan in, in, in uh, the late 70s being in Peshawar and being told about an event in 1926 where people collectively responded to a change in the Muslim world, which was about the end of the, the caliphate, the, the sultan, or position of sultan in the, 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 Ottoman sorry, the Ottoman Empire after it had been kind of defeated in the First World War. And the, the Hijra was 60,000 people left northwest frontier and went to, to, went to Kabul, you know, where they were hosted. So I'm, I'm just, when I hear about these things, I think, well, what is this anchored in? Because that's a very strong memory in a world that had nothing to do with media or events. This is a kind of a inherited a kind of cultural memory of, of that particular world. Anyway, thanks, and we'll move to a question uh, and answer now. Uh, thank you very much for that. That was fascinating. Um, I've, I've been working on cyber racism, so much of what you had to say was very interesting, and I'm particularly interested in the challenges you feel in public policy in actually convincing people who are intervening in these areas that the dynamics associated with radicalisation are very similar to the dynamics associated with, with racism. Uh, could you comment on that? Uh, thank you for that point. I think, I think it's of fundamental importance. Um, I think currently, in terms of the work on radicalization, there's uh, a dominant paradigm that's, that's, that's organized in terms of the, the vulnerable person on the one hand um, and a, a whole cluster of things if you like uh, what we need is to in, make present within this space much more data on actual experiences of radicalization and that's partly what I've been trying to do in, through this research uh, because I think the point you make is, is of great importance there's much to learn from work done on racism, at the moment that's in a different space because radicalization is funded through a different department, it's got a different budget line, but it's also got another different intellectual world and 
that world is largely constructed around um, uh, security paradigms uh, and um, has very little sense of social life, social world, uh, and simply does not have the capacity, the cap does not have the frameworks to understand the types of transformations involved in shifts towards racism and so on. Uh, so I'm not sure if the question you're asking is how can that be done, because I must say I, I don't know. Um, but I, it's very, very important. And I think events like this are a part of that, which is trying to shift the terms of the debate. That radicalization is not simply uh, a security problem. Uh, it is a, if you like, a social and cultural problem uh, that we, as racism, uh, and to a significant extent, certain forms of radicalization are very, very close to that. I went through the, uh, um, the profiles that the four people that you brought up, and it seemed that all of them lacked that connection to the contemporary British society that is there. They seem to be completely disconnected uh, from the common shared experience that millions of other teenagers or young people of their age are experiencing. And there is an easy availability of hate in us versus them mentality on the internet for them to latch on to. You said at the start of your talk that so sociology can contribute in terms of developing a policy that can sort of address these problems. What in your mind would be a policy that can probably help us deal with these issues of, of these kids coming from a different background and not being able to connect with the society that their parents moved to and not being able to connect with it? Uh, thank you. Um, I, yeah, uh, first of all, I should say that what I've done is select certain images and material to present a kind of pathway. Uh, in many ways, these young people are very connected. Aksa Mahmood is a kind of high school princess. She's got all sorts of things going on. Uh, Hussein was hacking into uh, Tony Blair's former personal assistant's Gmail account. So they are connected. Uh, they are part of contemporary Britain. Uh, and the material they construct their radicalization with is the sort of raw material uh, that's around contemporary Britain. They're not coming from, in that sense, uh, somewhere else, or uh, some scholars argue, for example, that radicalization is a result of misreading religious texts. Well, that's completely not what's going on here. Uh, so I, I would I'd argue strongly they are embedded in a kind of multicultural Britain, uh, but some sort of transformation occurs. I suppose the point, going back to the question made just, the point made previously, the types of things these young people are experiencing are not limited to them alone. Uh, there is a lot of similarity in Mahmoud's case with um, racism and hate crime uh, and calls for genocide. Uh, the world of hackers that uh, Hussein comes out of, the conspiracy theory, the sense of the powerful always being hidden, his social practice of masking, all of that, these are practices that are going on within the worlds that they're part of, uh, but in their case, they've kind of mutated uh, and sort of transformed them into something uh, that's ultimately um, centered ultimately on, on, on death. Uh, they are, if you like, unable to, in Mahmoud's case, the other, she becomes fearful of, and she responds in a kind of visceral way to a fear of contamination. 
So how do you deal with that? And it comes back to this question of how do you deal with racism? Uh, in part, it's not simply about ideas, it's about physical proximity, it's about maybe touch, it's about maybe doing things together, it's about breaking free of a kind of world that she constructs around her. Um, so I think the, the point you make is, you know, is a very important one, but the, I would underline that these are very much embedded in contemporary British society at the moment. They're not uh, people from a ghetto, they're not people who are not integrated. They are, in fact, very integrated. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much for your presentation. I actually have about six questions, but I won't ask all of them. Uh, I'll ask two very quick questions. Um, in the first example, uh, we take away um, the, um, uh, the idea of uh, experiencing suffering through others. And in the second example, we take away the idea of hidden meanings and conspiracy. My question is, there are many people who experience suffering through others, and there are many people who believe in conspiracy theories. After 9-11, after 53% of the American public, for example, believe that 9-11 was an inside job. But my question is, both these people do not push and see themselves joining groups that are um, hell-bent on destroying uh, civilization and asking people to join a gang to kill people. The second question is, in your uh, research, did you come across the interesting contradiction or the paradox that these young radicalized individuals are full-time consumers of the West yet hate the West. One of the last images you, sh you showed was of the young girl wearing an Adidas top. So um, two quick questions for you. Uh, yes, now the, question, the, the final one is the easier one. Uh, they are part of consumer culture. Uh, that um, I, Often, when, when I work with people involved in um, prevent programs in Britain, the question I always get is, how is the person vulnerable? And I say, they're not vulnerable. Uh, and I say, they say, good, but how are they vulnerable? Uh, it's, there's a very powerful image of some radicalization, if you like, being unthinkable, except in terms of something else. But in fact, they, it is part of... In this case, all of these people are part of consumer society. They're part of the world. And also, what they produce, the raw material out of which they fabricate, if you like, radicalization, is what's lying around them. So that's the, that's the themes of uh, consumer society. Now, the first one, the first question says, lots of people that believe in conspiracy theories, you're quite right. And in fact, more and more uh, of all kinds and that's evident in declining rates of vaccination, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, there's a decline, if you like, of uh, the credibility of uh, science, uh, of economics. I'm in Britain, and the country's in the process of self-destructing uh, because of experts, which we don't like anymore. Uh, so certainly, the, the, what's going on with people who become radicalised is not totally disconnected from the world that they're part of. Um, in, her in the one case, um, uh, there's a kind of transformation that occurs. Uh, she really is shocked. Uh, she's, she's, it's, uh, because I, I, you know, I've got one, only a short time to go through this, but there's a kind of existential shock, if you like, around violence. Uh, and she, that threatens her personally. And how is she going to deal with that? She, in a sense, flips it uh, and she transfers it. 
for Hussein, uh, he's about pleasure. He enjoys what he does. Uh, he's not so much fear, but power and enjoyment. Uh, and if you like, uh, wanting to establish himself as powerful. That's very, very, and within the pathway of people coming out of criminal backgrounds, that's very important. Um, power to either control within themselves what's going on or control with the other. Uh, so in both cases, uh, I don't think there's any one thing you can say, well, that is what happens. But there are certain points that you can see the issue is occurring. You can, you can detect the event, you can see what is happening and how this person is going to respond to that. And why I'm underlining that is that we're not talking about general factors, we are talking about experiences. And that really for the social sciences is fundamentally what the social sciences should be about helping us capture and understand those experiences. And in this case, there's a lot of data, in particular visual data and if you like sensory data generated by people uh, who have been involved in radicalization experiences that we really need to work on. But your question is very important and really I'm still working on it as many other people are as well. Yes, good evening. My question is quite simple. I just wish to know um, how would um, in modern radicalization uh, uh, what do you call modern radicalization in to this day and age compared to those in the past, let's say from uh, during uh, Hitler's uh, Nazi regime. What are the differences and how would it compare compared to today? Thank you. That is a very important question. Um, obviously a very big one and I can't hope to answer it in a couple of minutes. But there's one very, very important question, uh, difference. During the Second World War, the Nazi death camps were kept hidden. They were kept hidden and nobody wanted to talk about them or let them know about them. Today's radicalised violence wants to make the act of killing as public as possible. So there's a fundamental shift in terms of the violence. The reason being, today's radicalised people believe that violence and the act of violence will reveal a truth. It will reveal a reality. It's just as the school shooter, they feel themselves at the bottom of the school hierarchy. They want to demonstrate that they're not the loser everybody thinks they are. They want to fracture reality and they're going to do that through violence. So that's a fundamental difference between the type of violence during the Second World War that you refer to and contemporary violence. However, there's also a big similarity in both those cases. Violence involves cruelty. It's not only killing, it's trying to destroy the humanity of the victim. And in that case, that's the fundamental premise of the death camps, and that's also the fundamental premise of radicalised violence. You told a story uh, of someone who recognised suffering in the world and then that transformed into uh, what concerns about purity. But, you know, I would suggest that many people in the world stumble along in middle-class lives and suddenly realise there are homeless people, there is poverty, uh, we might recognise that there are poor, suffering people overseas and 
become anti-globalisation uh, activists. So there's this recognition of the injustice of the world, and I think it's a, what I call a moral struggle that lots of people go through. And you can recognise lots of forms of injustice, but you could also say rather than injustice related to globalisation, here's injustice that is in some way related to Western foreign policy. And one of the stories I've heard is that we shouldn't worry about the hypocrisy of Western foreign policy. I'm assuming a continuum, we're not just dismissing it. But we shouldn't worry about the hypocrisy of Western foreign policy because ISIS just wants to completely eliminate the West and they're just such poles apart. But I suggest the hypocrisy of Western policy means people stumble across this injustice and go, oh dear, and then they are brought into the orbit of ISIS. So I suppose I'm bringing you know, the hypocrisy of Western policy into this picture, but saying that's one of the raw materials that people act on. And okay, statement, not a question, but I've tried to be concise. Hope that's forgivable. No, thank you, it's very important. Um, I think on the, on the, through the material I've looked at, uh, Western foreign policy may be present, but it, it's not a significant thing. There are other things going on. Western foreign policy may, to an extent, shape the world, uh, but from the responsive, from the different pathways I'm talking, Junaid Hussein is concerned not about Western foreign policy. He's concerned about the Illuminati. Now, that's, as far as we know, not a reality. But so Western foreign policy certainly is important, but. Uh, I believe there's little evidence to show the many, the people I've spoken about here and others, uh, while the people who speak on the news, let's say, talk about Western foreign policy, uh, people who uh, become suicide bombers don't. There's something else they want to do. They want to either obliterate their past or they want to obliterate themselves now. And that's not because of Western foreign policy. Certainly that's very important, but Western foreign policy does not explain radicalization experiences, at least the ones I've looked at here. Yes, I was wondering whether those two examples that you talk about were um, really, um, they, they represented gender differences between uh, the, the take of the, the first example who um, was uh, more about justice, and the, the hacker who wanted power and wanted to reveal the truth. Is it uh, a pattern that is generic, or, or it's uh, just accidental that you pick these two examples? And I was also wondering, uh, when you talk about um, the affected fabrics and the ephemeral um, uh, nature of uh, radicalization, whether there is uh, any hint that uh, you have already uh, come across uh, of any intervention, if it's so ephemeral, um, is that anything that uh, is, is coming up as um, a bit of a hope for humanity? Thank you. Um, I think the gender question is important. It wasn't, I didn't choose it for that reason. Um, the, certainly the case of the young girls I showed is only really thinkable in terms of the experience of young girls who uh, can, they won't be destabilized or put into a relationship of competition through loving the one. 
that's very important for these young girls. And if you are designing anti-radicalisation or prevent activities with young people of that age, girls, you really must start to think about that. And that's totally different from the pathway of um, a hacker or someone who's used to sell drugs. So you know, very general things aren't going to work. You need to be much more focused on the experiences. Um, uh, at an overall level, I think the, um, there are certain differences. Uh, and uh, the type of focus on power and, if you like, the practice of masking which is really central to power, if you like experiencing power in that way, uh, is, I think, a gendered practice. Uh, others, however, the, the one that Mahmoud captures that orientation to a kind of justice and that being destabilised, uh, that is shared across both men and women. But there are certain very important gender dimensions structuring radicalisation pathways, as you suggest. Uh, uh, your last question, is there any hope? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, and I think uh, one of the very important things is for um, types of policy, to come back to the first question, to put power in the hands of young people themselves in different ways. The most effective way of if you like, responding to this is um, not so much, certainly not you know, security experts, and not really experts like academics, for example, but finding ways to produce experiences where people experience the other, not as a threat, not as a contamination, not as an existential danger, but uh, that people can experience living as an incomplete being, as what makes us human. And I think there are many forms of experience at the moment that suggest that is possible and, in fact, that is happening. And that incompleteness is what makes us need the other. Uh, and that's got to be at the centre of action against radicalisation. Um, so, uh, two questions, very related. And I think this might be outside the immediate area that you've been studying and that you've been covering, but hopefully you might have some uh, evidence from your colleagues and whatnot. Um, the path, so, so you, you've described two people who have been radicalised and incentivised to ultimately commit you know, bad acts, so violent acts. Is the path of someone who's radicalised towards a good act the same? Do they undergo a similar journey? And then a follow-on question from that is, if you are radicalised towards a good deed, is it still a good deed? I'm not sure I can answer that. Um, I'm using radicalisation, I suppose, in a, in a sense of um, a kind of pathway that someone wants to get there, but they don't understand. It's not you don't know what's at the end. They are shaped by tensions. Uh, they are there are ideas there which I haven't spent a lot of time, but they're definitely ideas. But there are also very powerful experiences such as I spoke about fascination, that sense of attraction and repulsion. It's very important to understand the dynamic of radicalization pathways. Now, uh, in that sense, uh, these are experiences that in a way the person 
loses themselves. Uh, I don't, so I'm using the radical, the term in a way, not, in, to use your words, towards the bad, in that it's destructive of human experience. Um, I, I, I wouldn't use the word radicalization in a, in a, in a, in a, in, towards the good. You might say de-radicalization, but that comes back to that point I was making before. De-radicalization means to experience one's incompleteness not as a threat or an existential danger, but the, the basis upon which we live with others. Okay, on that uh, question, we have to close. I'd like to thank uh, Professor MacDonald for such a stimulating talk and for coming and opening up a public debate on such an important topic. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.